Praise the Lord. My first scripture tonight is found in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. If you'd like to turn there, the scripture will be on the board. Isaiah 61 and 10 reads, I will, re- I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in God, for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He hath covered, he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a, bro- as a broom, as a groom decketh himself with ornaments and his bride, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. And then in, Ze- in Zephaniah, uh, chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, it says, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, he hath bid his guests. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are, clo- as are clothed with strange apparel. In Matthew 22, Jesus references Zephaniah's prophetic words in the parable of the wedding feast. When Jesus begins a parable, he usually, uh, when Jesus begins a parable with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like, he's about to tell a story that describes a spiritual truth about heaven in a manner in which we can picture in our mind and understand. Everyone loves a good story. And those who tell stories well are those that can draw their audience into the narrative so they are invested in what they hear. The audience of that day was a mixed crowd. Some were just ordinary people that came to hear a good story and perhaps see a miracle. There were others that hung on to every word Jesus spoke and were able to glean great truths from his parables. And then there were the Pharisees, some of which were interested in his teachings, like Nicodemus, who recognised that Jesus was a teacher sent from God. And then there were the others who Jesus rubbed up the wrong way. His teachings offended them because they revealed their spiritual shortcomings of hypocrisy, religiosity and a desire for social status over the things of God. And this is the case in Matthew 22. And so the parable begins with the king who's prepared a marriage feast for his son and sends sends forth his servants to call these people, call the invited guests to come because the celebrations were ready to begin. The Pharisees tuned their ears in as the story was not about an ordinary feast but a royal feast, a feast held by a king. An invitation to, the fi- to this feast would only go out to people with status like themselves. These people were A-list people deemed worthy to be in the presence of royalty. I have been to many weddings in my lifetime, none of which have been royal weddings. The closest I've come to attending a royal wedding is watching the ceremony on television. And even though the whole world is invited to sit in the front row seat of their lounge room to witness the, uh, to witness the ceremony, the wedding, feast, the wedding feast is reserved for those who received a physical invitation. As the servants call the uninvited guests to make their way to the reception, they are confronted by negative responses 
There are no explanations as to why they can't come. They just say, we can't come. The Bible tells us that they would not come. The message is relayed to the king who sends his servants out again, this time in persuading the guests to come when he tells them that dinner's ready. The oxen and the fatlings have been killed and everything is prepared. No expense has been spared. They must come to the marriage. But the invited elite treat the invitation with disrespect. They value their own agenda more than a royal invitation. It was not that they could not come, more so that they would not come, and dismissed the servants and went about their business. There were others, however, that didn't take kindly to the servants calling on them and were not satisfied until they had beaten them up and killed them. On hearing of the treatment of his servants, the king sends forth armies to deal with the murderers. Resigned to the fact that those on the original guest list were not worthy of this event, the king determines that he would, that there would still be guests at his son's wedding. And he sends his servants to the highways to gather as many as are willing to come. The invitation was open to the whosoever will to come and feast and celebrate with the king. It did not matter that these new guests were not accustomed to being in the presence of royalty and would not be dressed in suitable formal attire because the invitation assured them that royal apparel would be provided when they arrived. In ancient times, it was a custom for kings, ambassadors and people of distinction to own a wardrobe of elaborate garments. These were for guests and they were a symbol of wealth. These garments resembled kaftans and were more often given as gifts to those that wished to honour, the king wished to honour. We see this in several places in the scripture. For example, in Genesis 45 and 22, Joseph gave garments to his brethren after he had revealed himself and sent them back to go and get dad and the rest of the family. In Judges 14 and 12, Samson offers gifts of garments to the, uh, as a prize to the people or the ones that can solve his riddle. And in 2 Kings 5.22, Naaman offers garments to Elisha in honour of the miracle that he had received at his hand. Well, kind of. And although Elisha refused payment of any sort, Gehazi, his servant, couldn't pass up the offer. When, expect, when accepting the invitation to the king's feast, one agreed to wear the robe provided and by doing so honoured the host. As the king comes to meet his new guests, he notices a man who is not wearing the apparel that is approved. This takes the king by surprise. How is it that this man is not wearing one of my robes, but he is wearing strange apparel? The king makes his way over to the man and with decorum he asks the man a question which I have paraphrased for the title of my message this evening. What on earth are you wearing? Lord Jesus, I just ask you tonight that you would be with us. Lord, that you would open our hearts. 
I pray for clarity, O oh Lord God. I pray for your anointing, O oh Lord Jesus. I ask, O oh Lord, that your name would be lifted up and glorified and that your word would find good ground. I pray, O oh Lord, that it would be an encouragement to us. And I pray, O oh Jesus, that you would have your way in Jesus' name. Every day we all face the same decision. What are we going to wear? What shall we put on today? Some people don't put too much thought into it and just throw on whatever is on hand. Others put too much thought into it and waste too much time staring at a wardrobe full of clothes as if it was empty. Guilty. There are those that have the decision made for them because they get to wear a uniform to work. However, for these people, there are days that the uniform isn't required and so they're faced with the same dilemma. What to wear, what to put on. Dressing is a skill that we are taught as children. The question, what on earth are you wearing, is a question many a mother has either gasped vocally or in her head when her children are learning how to dress themselves and come out of their room in a combination only a lottery draw would come up with, mixing patterns, colours and seasons. With a little guidance and direction, we learn how to dress appropriately for different occasions and different seasons. Our learning is both direct with instruction and indirect by example. Our choice of clothing is intentional. From the practical side of things, we wear clothes to cover our nakedness and protect our bodies from the weather. However, this is not the only only factor that influences what we decide to put on. The occasion or the task we're dressing for is also considered. Formal attire is not practical for working in the garden. And what we would wear to work in the garden is not appropriate for a wedding. There is intention in the decision. There is intention in the decision of what we will wear. There's also the emotional factor. We make decisions based on how we feel and dressing is no different. When we allow our emotions to dictate our decisions, we affirm our feelings and set the tone for the rest of the day. This can work in our favour or to our detriment, depending on which way the pendulum is swinging. We don't have to allow our emotions to dictate, especially if we're feeling down, because our clothes have the power to influence our thought processes, improve our mood and influence our behaviour. We can put something on that makes us feel good. We can put something on that will lift our mood and we don't have to go around, you know, feeling awful. This phenomenon is known as enclosed cognition and was the subject of a study conducted in 2012 and published in the journal Social, Psychological and and Personality Science. The the study showed a difference in the performance in an attention-related task given to participants depending on the type of white coat they were wearing. Those that wore the coat, described as a lab coat, were more focused and attentive to the task 
and outperformed those who wore the coat described as a painter's coat. The study demonstrated a direct connection between the symbolic meaning of the clothes or the coat that we put on and the way that we think. The characteristics and the traits associated with the clothes we put on have the power to influence our thinking and behaviour. This concept is not a new one. Although the world would have us believe that the clothes we wear are of no consequence, studies like this one back up principles that we can find in the Word of God. Clothes are associated with identity and have the power to influence our mindset and our behaviour. When the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai where Moses received the law that the children of Israel would be governed by as God's chosen people. The law was meant to keep them close to God, teach them to walk with them, walk with him and to be holy. It was to be woven into their daily existence, existence and was a constantly a constant reminder that they were his chosen people. As as a holy God, the laws emphasised separation and purity. There was no room for things to be mixed or mingled. Everything was to be distinct and clear with no room for compromise or confusion. A bull and a donkey could not be yoked together to plough a field. When planting a field, one one type of seed was allocated to one field. And marriage, mixed marriages were not allowed. They were to marry within um, Israel and they were not permitted to wear clothing made from fabric that had been mingled with two kinds of stuff, namely linen and wool. Even the fabric of their clothes, even the fabric that their clothes were made of symbolised God's purity. And when they put these on, they symbolically put on the characteristics of God's holiness. While they were diligent and intentional to keep these things in their mind, their behaviour and their mindset were to observe the law and to love God. This brought the blessing of God upon them as individuals and as a nation. However, the children of Israel struggled to keep their focus on God, especially in times of prosperity. In their comfort and self-sufficiency, they would let their guard down and allow the influence of the idolatrous nations around them to infiltrate their borders and lead them down the path of idol worship and heathen practices. Their desire was not to be different, but to be like the nations around them, and they adopted the customs and practices from these nations and mingled them with what God had established, contaminating their separation and distinct. Distancing, distancing, there we go. Distancing themselves from the holiness of God. Time and time again, God in his mercy sent prophets to turn the hearts of the people back to him, pleading with them to repent or reap the consequence of impending judgment. Many times the prophets' words fell on deaf ears and their message was not taken seriously. The people would continue in their lifestyles and they went about their business with no regards for God. Other times the words of the prophets incited such anger that they were beaten and even murdered 
for the message they delivered. God honours his word. And as a consequence of their disobedience and dishonour, the curses set out in the law came upon them. Judgment came in the form of foreign armies that invaded and destroyed both kingdoms of Israel. The Assyrian army captured Samaria, the capital of Israel, in 720 BCE and carried away many into captivity. And in 587 BCE, the Babylonian armies came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, carrying away captives to Babylon. Jesus folds this history into the parable of the wedding feast. The listeners may or may not have been aware that Jesus was referring to them as the nation that were the invited guests. They were the privileged people chosen to take part in the kingdom of God. They were the nation chosen to reveal the one true living God to the world. But they would not participate. In his mercy, he reached for them time and time again, sending prophets, his servants, to warn them of judgment if they did not turn from their wickedness. They would plead with the people to come back to God and be the people that God designed them to be. But the words of the servants were not taken seriously and the people continued with their own agenda. Other times the servants sent from God were beaten and killed for trying to reach God's people. And the king sent forth armies to destroy them. Even as Jesus sat in their midst, they refused to believe that he was their Messiah, sent from God. And just as their ancestors had dealt harshly with the prophets, Jesus knew that they would deal harshly with him and with his disciples. And so with the banquet ready and the refusal of the Jews to participate, the king sends out another round of invitations. Here we find that the rest of the parable is prophetic. The feast will take place and the kingdom of God will be furnished with guests, but not with reluctant participants, with the whosoever will. Jesus came so that the invitation could be extended beyond the children of Israel. His death, burial and resurrection opened the way for all to receive an invitation from him, regardless of their nationality, culture, social status and gender. And so the attention of the king is now focused on the Gentile nations and he sends out his servants to the highways, to those that are afar off, to the good and to the bad, with an invitation to come to the kingdom and participate in the wedding feast that he has prepared. The invitation is a disruption from life. One must choose to leave what they are involved in to attend. They must, this is very much like repentance, a change of direction which requires a decision to cut some things off and leave them behind. To leave something behind, we must turn our back to it and walk away in the opposite direction. When we repent, we leave behind our ways, our thinking, and we walk towards God's ways and his thinking. It is a decision of a firm yes. I will drop my my agenda to attend to what God has for me. 
The first group of invited guests refused to be interrupted. They valued their lifestyle, their professions and their stuff over the privilege, privilege afforded to them to feast and celebrate with the king. Repentance is the beginning of the journey, the beginning of the new identity that will require a change of spiritual clothing. Spiritually, we are destitute and repentance is a recognition of our poverty and the desire for better things. We cannot enter the wedding feast in beggar's rags. However, we can't afford a wedding garment. But this is not a reason to decline the invitation. For the king has made provision and included in the invitation is the promise of a new robe. To enter the kingdom, we must be born again. When we repent and we are baptized in Jesus' name, our sins are remitted. Repentance brings forgiveness, but baptism in Jesus' name wipes our record clean. The old life is dead and buried. And when we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, we are raised to new life and we identify with the gospel of Jesus Christ and our salvation is complete. Isaiah 61 and 10, we read, I will rejoice in the Lord my soul. My soul shall be joyful in God, for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with garments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. When we are born again of water and spirit, we enter the kingdom of God and we receive a new garment. The garment of salvation, the robe of righteousness, which the king purchased for us with his blood. We are expected to wear what the king has provided, as it is symbolic of his attributes and characteristics, much like, a, much like the physical fabric used to make clothing under the law. It is a garment that is pure, clean and white, without spot or wrinkle or blemish. It is the only garment the king recognises as appropriate for the kingdom and his wedding feast. Zephaniah's prophecy came at a time in Judah's history where they had once again turned their back on God. Under the reign of King Hezekiah, Judah had undergone spiritual reform. Hezekiah abolished and outlawed idolatrous worship and tore down the high places. He cleansed and repaired the temple which had been abandoned and he reformed the priesthood. Hezekiah resumed the celebrating of the Passover inviting the ten tribes of Israel to come to Jerusalem for the celebrations. But when Hezekiah died, his son Manasseh took the throne. Interestingly, Manasseh's name means forgetter, which is appropriate for what he did for Judah. He did his, he did his utmost to forget God by undoing all the things that his father had done to bring spiritual reform to Judah. When you read the account, it's like Manasseh had an agenda and he just, it was like he was, he was 12 when he took the throne. So I wonder if there was a bit of rebellion in that 12 year old. But Manasseh went about, he went hard 
to introduce things and to get rid of the things that his father had established. Manasseh reintroduced idolatry and idolatrous practices. He rebuilt the high places and he even set up altars for astrology. He was involved with witchcraft and with fortune tellers. He even sacrificed his children to Moloch. What began with King what began with King Manasseh spread throughout the entire kingdom of Judah. Many of the people in Judah did not completely abandon the worship of the one true God. They worshiped God and participated in forms in other forms of religion as well. This was not done ignorantly, but rather it was intentional. They ignored God's requirements for separation and they attempted to mix that which could not be mixed. Instead of being a people pure and separated unto God, they mixed the fibres of their cultural fabric with the cultures and the practices of the nations around them and the result was strange apparel, apparel that God did not recognise as his. Zephaniah warned that the punishment of Judah's sin would begin in the king's house with the princes and his children and would spread to all such that were clothed with strange apparel. What on earth are you wearing? This is the question that the king asked the individual that did not have on the wedding garment. He wore strange apparel, a robe that the king did not recognise as his. He had to have received the wedding garment because he entered the kingdom the same way everybody else did. Galatians 3 and 27 tells us, For as many of you as have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ. The Greek word for the phrase put on is enduo. It carries with it the sense that you sink into a garment and become one with it and that you take on the characteristics associated with it, much like an actor gets into character when he puts on a costume. To put on in this context is a deliberate act, much like getting dressed. Could it be that the man in strange apparel at the wedding feast chose not to put the wedding garment on? Instead, he chose something that appealed to his pride and to his vanity. His lack of response when the king asked about his apparel suggests there was no reason. Perhaps he thought it didn't matter and that the king wouldn't notice. After all, it's not about what you wear. Whatever his thinking, his neglect in not wearing what had been provided saw him punished. It's no wonder that we're urged through the epistles to put on Christ, to take on his traits and characteristics. This is the appropriate garment for the kingdom. Colossians 3, 12 to 14 tells us, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, 
which is the bond of perfectness. Just as we get dressed in the morning, we need to make sure that our spiritual man is clothed appropriately for the kingdom. To put Christ on is an intentional act. To put something on, you can't put on, you know, the red shirt by accident. You intend to put on the red shirt. When we put on Christ, we will begin to see our world through his eyes. We see through the eyes of thanksgiving for what he has done for us and what he has provided for us. What on earth are you wearing? We have been provided with a new wardrobe, yet some, yet some of us consti- constantly go back to what is comfortable. To put on Christ is an intentional act. When we get, when we get dressed in the morning, put on Christ. If you feel like putting on the old man, choose to put on Christ. What you wear on earth is your choice. Choose to put on Christ. Put on his characteristics. Choose to take on his traits. Choose to put on bowels of mercy. Choose to put on kindness and humbleness of mind and meekness and long-suffering. Every day when we go out into this world, we will be faced with situations and with the opportunity to act, to portray uh, Jesus' characteristics. But if we have not put on Christ, if we do not leave the house with the mindset that today, I will do what you will, Lord. I will walk the way you want me to walk, Lord. How? We will get caught up in, if we leave in our own clothes, if we leave in the old man, our reaction, the way we respond will be the old man. We need to put on Christ. Choose to be clothed. Choose to be clothed with garments of salvation. Choose to put on a tiara a crown instead of the ashes that you came from. Choose the oil of joy over sadness. Put it on. Choose the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. All these things have been given to us to change us and make us like him. They are the garments that he has provided for us that we would wear them and when we put them on, that we would show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Everything that we are encouraged to put on in the scriptures changes will change our perception and our behaviour and our thinking when we put it on. Do not be found wearing strange apparel. Put on the purity of Christ. Put on the wedding garment that he has provided for you. Why don't we stand this evening?